0: There we go. All right. Welcome again to Hope Community Church, Lower Town, St. Paul edition. Uh, so we are in uh, Rome, the book of Romans in the New Testament, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. You can see the kind of the subtitle there, Did God's Plan Fail? We're in a section starting in here in Romans 9. We're going to conclude Romans chapter 9 today. Uh, And if you're like, I haven't been here for any of these, um, that's fine. There's been 38 sermons so far in Romans. It feels like a a lot, and it is a lot because it's a long letter. Uh, If you're like, I want to go back and listen to some, or maybe you have heard some, but you're like, I want to go back and remember what I disagreed with that they said, you can find that on the podcast. Uh, It's called Hope Lower Town Sermons. It's available anywhere if you really want to go back and listen to the sermons. They're all there. Um, So let's get into it. Again, my name's Paul. So I have one of the elders here excited to follow Brian as he looked at a large chunk of Romans last week and get, let's get right into it. So last week we saw in many ways, and this is a very short paraphrase, that has God's word failed? God's word has not failed. Okay, nice. Um, He chooses to show mercy, but what we saw is that God calls the people to himself out of both Jewish people, uh, Israelites and Gentiles. Uh, and he does this in a way we don't expect. He does it by his mercy. He does it by his choice, not based on our good works, our efforts, as it were. And so that's kind of a, a shock. In fact, that challenges all of our thinking about church and, and being a good person and religion. Many of us, uh, tend to believe that just to get into heaven is to try to be a good person every day. And, and then at the end, hopefully you have enough points. Um, but that's just not what we saw last week. It's not what we're going to see this week, uh, uh, Dr. Takunba Araemo in the Africa Bible Commentary recaps last week's passage like this. He's talking to uh, African believers, but he uh, kind of says this about everyone. He says, believers all over the world are among the objects of God's mercy. God has called us to be a special people belonging to Him. God has called us not because of who we are, but because of who He is, the sovereign God we have no right to be proud or arrogant. Our salvation is none of our own doing. It is all by the divine will of God. And one of the things Brian looked at last week, we can maybe even feel like we see in this is there's this idea of determinism. God has just done it that I don't have any choice. Um, But And we sometimes when we see that, we feel like, okay, I don't know if I like that about God, that, that he just chooses. I don't know if I love that. But what we have to see, and what we'll see a little bit today, is that faith, the the option to believe in God, to trust God, is available to everyone. And so today we're actually going to get a little more into our response and how that matters, that we actually have a choice to accept or reject this gospel message and the God behind it. So this week's sermon is titled, Never Put to Shame. We're going to be closing out Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Uh, So last week, Brian had, I think, like 20-some verses. I get three, and yet I'm probably going to go longer than he did. Uh, We'll see how that goes. So let's get right into it. Uh, Romans 9, 30 through 33. Uh, Before we get into it, so I said we'd get right into it, and now we're not. Um, (laughs) Just a little context. What had happened was in the church at this time, uh, Jewish uh, people had been believing, not believing the gospel, and then all of a sudden, a ton of Gentiles, and when I say Gentiles, that just means other nations, non-Israelite people. All of a sudden, all kinds of people that weren't Israelites start coming in as they're hearing this gospel. They're responding. They're coming into the church in droves. But not a ton of Jewish people are at this time. And so Paul's kind of responding, what is happening there? And he's going to give an answer here. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right. So that's our passage for this week. And we'll come back to this because it's, what does it even mean? All right, so let's get into it. Today's message, three things, uh, biblical theology, geology, full confession, by the way, in my mind, geology was the study of rocks. Not necessarily, it's the study of all materials of the earth is what I learned. I thought of it last night. I'm like, I should probably look up what geology means. So you'll notice why that's important in a second. Then missing the Messiah. Why did Israel miss the Messiah as in Jesus when he was there in front of them or even as they read the scripture? And then faith as an antidote to the problem that we'll see presented as this comes up. But let's start with biblical theology, geology. And I wanna talk about that idea of, of where does this idea, stone of stumbling, a rock of offense that the Apostle Paul is referencing here in Romans 9, where does it come from? And when we do, that, when we see that. That's actually a quotation used in the New Testament a quotation from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, actually two separate spots. Any Bible that you have is gonna have a little footnote or a link or whatever to those quotations. What the biblical authors are doing when they quote the Old Testament is they're bringing a testimony of witnesses. So when Paul actually uses two sources from Isaiah, he's actually kind of bringing like two witnesses. He's saying, I'm making a case for this to be what the gospel's teaching. And look how the Old Testament is telling us that's what it's teaching. So that's what he's doing. And we could do this on our own. It's called integration. Anytime we see a Bible theme or topic or quotation, we can go back and see what is this saying? What does it mean? And so we get this idea of a rock, a stumbling block, a rock of offense. But that's not the only way that the Bible describes God. God is described in a couple ways in the Bible, and one of them is as a rock of refuge. So, we kind of have this idea of rock of offense, which we saw in our passage. And then we have this idea of God as a rock of refuge. And if you're looking at the picture, that's the same rock. It's two ways to describe this God as a rock of refuge or a rock of offense. And so in Psalm 18, we see this I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So there we see God described as a rock in whom we can take refuge. And if you're ever wanted to do a fun little Bible word study, especially in the Psalms, do a word study on the word my, possession language here, right? My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. So we see God described as a rock of refuge. But we also, again, in our passage, and now here's one of the quotations from our passage, see God described, actually, this one doesn't have it. We see God described as a different kind of, of rock. So Isaiah 28, 16 and if you're wondering, who's Isaiah? He's the prophet in the Old Testament. If you're like, why are we looking at the Old Testament? Uh, it's important, but <laughs> it feels a little crusty and old, but it's actually what informs the New Testament, what informs the gospel, what informs the apostle Paul as he's writing. He's actually looking back into the story and it's making the connections and saying, oh my gosh, this is what is describing Jesus. This is what I was describing what I'm seeing now. And so Isaiah 28, 16, we see this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. In our passage that said, whoever believes will not be put to shame. So we see the Apostle Paul using this quotation to reference now a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. But we have to ask, who is this or what is this stone? So then we go to the other section of Isaiah that the Apostle Paul is quoting. And again, you can just find this with your Bible. For the Lord, this is Isaiah eight eleven through 15, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Okay, so we get this intense language again from Isaiah. This is another part of the quote the Apostle Paul is using. And we see again, stone of offense, rock of stumbling. We also see sanctuary. We see trap and snare, but we realize now that what this person, this rock is describing is a person. He will become a sanctuary. He will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So it's not just a concept. It's a person. In fact, one quotation says this, one commentary. In Isaiah 8, 13 through 15, the prophet foretells how the Assyrians, the enemy forces of the Israelites at the time in Isaiah, how the Assyrian invasion will sweep over the land of Israel like the waters of a great flood, but there will be one place of refuge from the overwhelming water. God himself will prove a sanctuary to all who put their trust in him, a rock on which they will stand secure. Those, however, who do not entrust themselves to him, but put their confidence in other powers or resources will be swept by the flood against the rock and come to grief upon it to them. Far from being a place of refuge, it will prove a dangerous obstacle, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So we get this idea. This, what is he saying? What is this commentator saying? He's saying the rock of offense and the rock of refuge are the same thing. It's the same person, it's God, and we have a choice. We can, refi- we can accept this, we can trust in God and find ourselves in a sanctuary secure, or we can trust in other powers or resources or ourselves, and the rock then, God himself, becomes a dangerous obstacle a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. Kind of continuing upturning these rocks, going through the Old Testament, thinking about where the rocks and stones and cornerstones talked about, we go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So again, another section of the Old Testament here, a psalm, another psalm, talks about a rejected stone, a rejected cornerstone. This person who causes a response of either trust or distrust is the cornerstone. And this is all, verse 23 says, God's plan. So we see all kinds of stuff. There's gonna be this stone, this kind of thing that causes people to either respond with trust or reject. That stone is actually a person. That stone is actually gonna become the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation. So God's setting up a plan that way. And we follow through the rest of the New Testament the events of the cross and the events of Jesus's life. And then what we have in the Bible, if you are just following the Bible storyline, the events of the cross happen, And then the rest of the New Testament is the New Testament authors trying to say, what just happened? And one of the places we see that is the book of Acts. They're making sense of what just happened. So in Acts chapter four, it says, they had just had, uh, Peter just healed someone. Someone was sitting outside the synagogue. They couldn't walk. Peter heals him. And then they say, what are you doing? You can't do that. So Peter says this, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What's Peter doing? He's looking back into the Old Testament like we just did. And he's saying that person in God's plan that either causes you to accept him or reject him is this very Jesus who healed this man today. He's saying, this is the cornerstone. This was the whole point of God's plan. That person that was gonna be a rock of offense or a rock of refuge is Jesus. For those who trust, he's a rock of refuge. For those who don't, he's offensive. He's the raised savior, the pathway of salvation. Again, Peter in the New Testament says in his letter, to the church. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders had rejected has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So again, we see this. The apostle Peter is saying, you believe. He has become a rock of refuge. He's the cornerstone of God's plan. And you get this honor from that. But for those who don't believe, they're just fulfilling God's word. Sometimes we see that word destined there at the end of this passage here, and we think, oh, that's, again, I don't like that. feels like God forced them into this. All that's describing, it's actually not deterministic as much as it is predictive. He's saying in their rejection of Jesus, they're actually fulfilling what God said would happen, that people would find him either a rock of refuge and run to him for safety, because they knew they were exposed and vulnerable and dangerous or they'll and in danger, or they'll see him as a rock of offense and they'll flee him and say, I've got this on my own. So that's a little bit of geology. And again, all we're doing is some word studies. We're looking at where is this used? And we're seeing Paul's argument in Romans 9 was that they, they didn't pursue, why are they missing out on Jesus? Because they didn't pursue him By faith, they pursued him by works. And so let's get into this idea of missing the Messiah. For those of you that know basketball, and I don't know how many of you do, this is Nikola Jokic. He is probably the best player in the world in the NBA. He is the MVP. I think he's the current MVP and the current champion. And the Denver Nuggets are the champions uh, right now in the NBA. Uh, and this picture of him has got him kind of playing basketball sure and then the other side is him partying. So if you know anything about Nikola Jokic, he hates basketball. He doesn't actually like it. They won the championship and he's getting interviewed and they're like, "Are you excited about the parade?" and he's like, "Oh, there's a parade? I just want to go back to Serbia. He's from Serbia. What he really loves is horse horse racing and being in Serbia and going out to nightclubs. And he's the best player in the world. He's the MVP. That's what the apostle Paul is saying is like the Gentiles. They didn't pursue righteousness at all. They didn't even care about this righteousness and they've received it by faith. They're the best in the world. They get this honor. Meanwhile, the the Israelites are are pictured as like that player that just gets up 4 a.m. every day, does everything he can, thousand buckets by 5 a.m. and then loses in the finals to Jokic who doesn't even care and wants to just go clubbing. That's what we're seeing here in Romans 9, but that, in verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. When presented with the option to trust God or try to merit favor with God, to earn God's blessing, Israel chose to try. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. One commentator says, Israel's problem was not their adherence to the law, but their rejection of the anticipated Messiah written about in the Old Testament, King Jesus, who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law on their and our behalf. Rejecting God's free gift of righteousness by faith means they have gained nothing from their law-keeping. Like the basketball player who's up at 4 a.m. with a thousand shots, Before 5 a.m., they've gained nothing because they've rejected God's free gift of righteousness. Israel actually has a history of rejecting God in favor of worshiping the works of their hands. The biggest example of this is when God has delivered them in the Exodus. He literally brought them out of Egypt. Uh, They plundered the people. They took their jewelry and their gold. Then he brings them through the Red Sea, delivers them. And then as he's giving Moses the 10 commandments, the people are down on the ground at the bottom of the mountain and they throw all their jewelry in. And with the work of their hands, they build this golden calf and they bow down. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. No, they're not. God just did that. In fact, the gold and the jewelry that you used to build this golden calf, he gave you. But instead they worshiped the work of their hands. That's how we miss the Messiah. It says again in Romans 9, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So for those that trust in the rock of refuge, You stop trying and you trust and you're never put to shame. For those who find that offensive, you say, I'll never stop trying. Trust? No, thank you. I'll do it myself. Israel's missing of the Messiah is because they're pursuing God by works. And this is not without the heartfelt appeal of Jesus. Here in Matthew 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Do you see the heart of Jesus here? How much he wants to save people who reject him? He is the prophet not honored. He is the one. They're not willing to come to. Again, in Luke 19, 37 through 40, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Got a lot of good stone, a lot of geology happening today. But let's talk about this though. What's he saying? So first of all, one thing that's fascinating is he's coming in to Jerusalem and they're singing Psalm 118 over him. This is again Psalm 118. And they're saying, here's our King. He's come to deliver us. They're rejoicing, they're delighting, they're praising that the king has come to deliver. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day are saying, don't, they shouldn't be doing that. And what does Jesus say? He says, if people weren't rejoicing at my coming into the kingdom, coming to deliver them, the stones on the ground themselves would sing and rejoice. He's saying, I'm the king, I'm standing right here. I'm the cornerstone of God's plan and you are rejecting me. You're not getting it. Even the stones on the ground, dead stones on the ground. If these people weren't praising me, the stones would praise me and you don't even get it. You refuse to believe when even stones would rejoice and trust because of works. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, he's just got done feeding the 5,000 and walking on water. It says this, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What's the work of God? According to Jesus, believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I mean, if we read read the whole chapter, we're like, he just did. He fed 5,000 people and then he walked on water. What are you talking about? How do you validate yourself? Jesus, what work do you do to prove that we should trust you? What sign? There's an obsession here with works. And he says, here's the work. Believe in me. I'm standing right in front of you. I'm the cornerstone. Don't you see what I've done? Don't you see who I am? But they won't because of works. Charles Spurgeon famous preacher says this the principle of salvation by our own works exalts man and you may be sure that it must be an error for that reason on that principle you are your own savior everything hinges upon what you do and what you feel and jesus christ is nowhere if you were to get to heaven by this road you would sing your own praise and glory this system of works puffs you up and makes you feel what an important person you are to deserve so well of God. its It smells of that pride which the Lord abhors. Say, we'd be singing our own praise if we were able to save ourselves by our works. It reminded me of Snoop Dogg, rapper Snoop Dogg, when he got elected to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Would you have to pay like 75 grand to get that, I think, actually, which is wild? But Snoop, when he, I think he does this tongue in cheek. I'm not here to dog on Snoop. (laughs) Um, But here was Snoop Dogg's speech when he got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He said this. I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for being me at all times. If we were to be saved by our works, we would get to heaven and we would say this to God. I want to thank me. I did enough for you to accept me. I did a great job. But that's not the way the gospel works. Another commentary says, their efforts were based on faith, not not on faith, but on personal performance. Their efforts were doomed from the beginning because God does not accept sinners on the basis of what they do. Righteousness comes by faith and faith alone. God does not allow himself to be put in debt to people in their best efforts. The approach that says righteousness can be earned fails to grasp the enormity of sin. Our separation from God is so great that only he can bridge the gap. He chooses to do it entirely on his own. Our only responsibility is to accept by faith the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners. See what he's saying? We're talking about righteousness, right? That's a status, the honor, the ability to stand before God and be accepted. And he's saying the way that status, that honor comes to you is not by you earning it and thanking yourself. The way it comes to you is a gift. You put your faith in Christ. And when you do, that righteousness, that right standing with God is given to you. Imputed is the big theological word. I guess it's not that big of a word, but. Then we have to see this other thing. He says, when we think we can earn God's favor by our own works, when we think we can make ourselves righteous, we actually don't see the enormity of sin. Do we grasp the enormity of sin that emerges from works-based thinking that causes us to reject God and his offer of salvation? It causes us actually to despise people. We look at people and we either... uh, see this, we look down on them. I say, I could never be like you. Or we tear them down because we say, they're better than me. I got to find a way to tear them down, gossip, dig, despise. So this this idea of, of righteousness through faith or righteousness through works not only impacts our view of God, our decision to accept or reject Him, but it actually impacts the way we love others. I tried to come up with a list, actually, of of works-based thinking. All the ways I tried to do just for myself, but then a lot of other ones came in that I don't necessarily relate to. But all the ways that I tend to think I'm better than others. I kind of came up with some categories. Person, so just I am better than you. Oh, I didn't insert categories examples. There's a nice slide typo for everybody. (laughs) Or maybe that's just a reminder to myself to use these examples. Uh, Oh, dang it. No, I can't. I'm not righteous. Uh, That's okay. I have Jesus. All right. Person, though, says I'm better than you because of who I am. Performance says I do better than you. The things I do make me better than you. Maybe lifestyle. I live better than you. My life choices make me better than you. And finally, beliefs. I think better than you. Therefore, I'm superior. A few of these examples just from person. Oh, real quick, though. What works-based thinking does, why I want to highlight this, is works-based thinking places value on difference. Do you understand why racism is so evil? Because there's no choice whether someone is born white or black, but we, for some reason, place value on difference. It goes against God and it's works-based thinking, especially when we see that salvation comes through faith based on nothing someone has done and nothing about them. So person says, I'm better than you. Some examples could be, uh, I care more about keeping our house clean, roommate. I'm taller. I'm just taller than you. That makes me better. I'm older. I'm more talented. I come from the right place. I have the right background. I have epic life experiences. I tell interesting stories. You, you kind of seem okay with being boring. My, per, you know what, my perspective due to my social status, my ethnicity, my age, that actually makes me better than you. I'm superior, I'm wiser. Performance, I do better than you. I know the right way to load the dishwasher and you don't. So therefore I'm better than you. I'm better at Wordle than you. I lost Wordle today, by the way, rip. Uh I, I care more at my job than you do. And in I'm actually smarter than my boss and everyone else here. I'm better. I do more for the church than you do. I've got the right education. I got the right financial insight. I figured it out and you didn't. The, oh, my work ethic? So much better than yours. How about lifestyle? You realize when you, if you ever have worked out consistently, you start to just think, Gosh, those lazy people. I care about my health. When's the last time you even worked out? I'm benching. I'm running. I live better than you. I parent my kids this way, not that way. I got it figured out. I actually care about my house, my health. Maybe my house is cleaner, nicer. I keep the inside of my car clean. I live better than you. Beliefs, this is one I think that really could come after us, especially in an election year. I think better than you. Insert categories, examples. Okay, let's do it. I'm more informed on the issues than you are, and I think rightly about them. My politics, my sociological views... My theological views are liberal. I care way more about loving people than you do in my views. Don't you care about loving people? I do. Maybe you say, no, I don't know. I care about the truth. I'm conservative. I wanna tell the truth. I don't I care about the truth, do you? My theology is conservative. My political view is conservative. My views on the issue is conservative. Therefore, I'm better than you. My issue, my cause is clearly the most urgent one. And I seem to be the only one who cares about it. I'm the only one who truly sees what's the real problem in the world because I'm the only one that's really aware. Others aren't as wise as me. You see, the problem with this workspace way of thinking is we start to despise other people. We either look down on them and scoff or we look up to them and want to tear them down. Oftentimes the people closest to us get the most venom from us. Think about how many times this upcoming political season you're going to want to hate your parents for what they think about a politician or an issue. Or maybe you're currently thinking through that right now. Say, I think this way I'm better. It creates in us a venom a sinful superiority that is anti-love and anti-gospel, and it is killing us. To think in a workspace way, to place value on difference is eating us alive. So we need something to come in and interrupt that. What is it? Faith is the antidote. Actually, I do want to go back to that. The prayer of work says, and so this is from Luke 18, the Pharisee prays, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like blank. Here's why this matters you can't fully love people that you think you're better than or worse than. We need to be freed from this way of thinking, this works based way of thinking that says, I, I got to base my identity on how much I try or how much I care. We need faith to come in. Faith as the antidote to this venom that is poisoning us and killing us. And that's what God's plan is all about. Again, the apostle Paul says, what what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. All the way back in Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When we reject this offer of coming to God simply through faith and receiving righteousness from Him, and we say, no, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to try, whether we're religious people and say, I'm going to try really hard to be a good person and earn heaven, or we're irreligious people and say, I'm going to try really hard to just make a name for myself get the approval of that person. Then I'll know I'm okay. We, we sound like someone who goes skiing and says, yeah, I see the ski lift, but I think I'll walk. I'll walk to the top. I got it. Thank you very much. Or recently, this is wild. Our neighbor, they're moving to senior living. They gave us their riding lawnmower. I was thinking of a number to pay. She's like, we'll give it to you. I was like, I will accept. It would have been ridiculous of me to say, you know what, no thanks. I'm going to make $2,000 with a side job. I'll buy my own, thank you very much. But that's what we do. Why do we do this? One commentator says, why could God have decided not to give justification to all those who sincerely show love or who show joy or contentment or humility or wisdom? Why did God choose faith as the means by which we receive justification? It is apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own good works any longer. The gospel is freely available. Right standing with God is freely available on the other side of I give up. But we often have a crockpot theology let me get into this. We find it offensive that God wants us to come to him empty-handed. We say, I gotta bring a dish to pass. I gotta bring something to the potluck. I also, by the way, I'm always nervous about the quality of what I bring as a dish to pass. It's ironic that we tell God, I gotta, you know, I gotta bring something for you to accept me. You realize every other worldview, whether religious or irreligious, says that. If you're a religious person, you say, I'm going to just, I got to follow the right rules of my faith or my religion, and then I'll earn heaven. That's about what you bring to the table. If you say, no, I reject that stuff, but I got, I'm, you know, I really want to make a name for myself, a business, I want to have that nice house and that nice family. It's all about you and what you do. Faith is the opposite. Faith says, I give up but we want to bring something to the table. We don't see the absurdity. Jim Carrey did the Golden Globes and they they announce them. They say, two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And he comes out and he delivers this. He's presenting an award. He gives this speech. It's hard to read, but he says, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. He says, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey because then I would finally be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know won't ultimately fulfill me. I love this part. He goes, but these are important, these awards. See what he's saying? He's he's actually hitting on this. There's two ways to live. We can put all our hope in the works of our hands and have it never be enough. Or we can say, I give up. Faith is the antidote. Faith is the one thing now. He's not going to look down on non-Golden Globe winners or look up to three-time Golden Globe winners and try to tear them down. Faith is the one thing that disrupts the venom that works-based thinking does to us. The death-causing, joy-stealing, insecurity-festering, hate-invoking antidote is to receive Christ, the whole Christ, receive his righteousness through faith and stop this terrible search. the only thing that turns us into people that actually love, because the gospel is not a potluck where you bring a dish to pass in order to be accepted to get in. The gospel is like a free buffet that never runs out. We did did geology, now we're getting into food. Here we go. It's a free buffet. We don't need to bring a dish to pass. You actually don't need to bring anything to God to be accepted except your faith. We actually do bring a dish to pass. The gospel tells us we do bring a dish to pass. Martin Luther said it this way. What do I contribute to my salvation? Sin and resistance. The gospel is not a potluck, a dish to pass, but a free buffet. It is to say, I give up. Isaiah 55 says, come buy and eat without money. Take of this good news. Receive by faith, the righteousness that you could never earn from the work of your hands. And when we do that, it actually changes us to be people who love, who stop looking down on others as we try to make a name for ourselves or try to tear others down who are better than us. (coughs) And the only thing that ultimately gets us to stop rejecting God, another rock action here, is that the rock of ages. This rock of refuge, this rock of offense—that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of ages—was cleft for me, as the old hymn says. For all of us who, geez, for all of us who reject God, trying to make a name for ourselves, Jesus suffers the rejection, not only of human beings but of God, as He pays the penalty for sin. The passage says, those who believe in Jesus will never be put to shame. Why can it say that? Because Jesus was, on the cross, put to shame for you and me. He suffered the rejection and the shame we deserve for our unloving, God-rejecting ways so that we now can be brought by faith into the kingdom of God and actually become people who love like he loves as First John says, we love because he first loved us. He became our rock of refuge. So I just ask today as we close. Are you missing Jesus the Messiah? Is he standing right in front of you and saying, stop trying and believe in me? And you say, no, I'm going to figure it out on my own. I got this. Thank you very much. Don't miss him. And second, if you have trusted in Christ, you now and for all time have Christ's righteousness. So stop trying. To establish your own and you'll never be put to shame because he has become our refuge every week at Hope we practice communion <clears throat> and we get a chance to remember that he has died for us that now we have a right standing with God not based on anything we've done but everything he's done So if your faith is in Christ, we'd love to have you join us for this communion. Uh, There's bread and juice and a little cracker. And they represent something. They represent his body broken for us that says he's paid for our sin. And his blood shed for us that says if you are in on this, you have his righteousness. You are accepted in him. And therefore, you don't have to try to establish your own. So we don't ask you to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that your faith is in Christ. We'd love to have you join us for this communion meal. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and we'll close in song and communion. God, we today give up. We confess that we so often want to just establish a name for ourselves based on our own goodness, our own performance, our own lifestyle choices, our own beliefs. And you say, you accept none of that. What you want from us is to come to you with open hands and receive the gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray. I pray that we would stop trying and start trusting. I pray that we would love others like you love because we would be fleeing from looking down on them or trying to tear them down. God, would you today, even now as we close in song, change the way that we love others and change the way that we think about relating to you, that we don't need to impress you because you are already delighted in us. You've saved us by your son. In his name we pray, amen.